like to welcome our listeners to our latest podcast, All Things Mental Health with Mike and Joy. And Joy, I'm going to turn it over to you because these are people that you know and invited to be our guests on our podcast. So I'll let you take it from there. So yeah, we have an exciting couple of guests in the studio today. Full disclosure, one of them is my partner and they are both from Metriarch, okay. And could you guys both introduce yourselves Talk a little bit about your role at Metriarch, what you do, and a little bit about, about Metriarch as well. I am Eliza. I am Joyce partner. I'm an anthropologist with a Master of Science in Social Sciences Research, and I work with Metriarch as the Data and Policy Research Coordinator. Hello, I am Caitlin Beasley. I am Metriarch's policy engagement person. Um, I've been with the organization for a year on Halloween. I come from a public relations background with a domestic violence agency, and um, my background is in historical stuff. My master's degree is in research from, you know, the past. So I think we make a kind of interesting duo when we kind of, how we de design our research and put it out there. Metriarch is a women's public health think tank. It's been around for four or five years. And we do research, like what we're going to talk about today. And then we also do uh, policy monitoring. So when a legislative session comes, we pick out all the bills that have to do with women's health here in Oklahoma, and we track them, try and keep everyone in the loop, make that information accessible. That's kind of a little bit about what we do. I don't know if I missed anything. Yeah. And to my understanding, Metriarch is kind of the policy arm of the Take Control Initiative, which is under the Tulsa Community Foundation, correct? Yes. I know that some people might be more familiar with those two organizations. So for those of you listening who aren't familiar with Metriarch, they are associated with those organizations. But thanks for that great introduction, kind of segueing into what we're going to talk about today. So we talk about mental health stuff, and you guys have done some really interesting research lately related to substance use and pregnancy. Can you guys tell us a little bit more about that? And I think I missed in my sort of introduction just saying that my primary research focus has been in alleviating disparities in reproductive health, especially perinatal health care. So I did a thesis on racialized disparities and risk when it comes to Black people giving birth in the U.S. and like how they navigate those healthcare systems. And I say that because I also notice a lot of similarities when it comes to people who are pregnant and giving birth in Oklahoma, that getting appropriate care and non-discriminatory care is not a given. And when I started to work on that pro this project, I started to see a lot of similarities in how people strategize to seek out comprehensive and non-discriminatory uh, perinatal care. Our research project really focused on interviewing people with lived experience to understand their perspective on those barriers, as well as interviewing care providers. So really getting in touch with the people who know so much more about this, just to mention that Caitlin and I are not social workers, we're not mental health professionals, uh, but we are researchers and really wanting to understand how people who are pregnant in Oklahoma navigate uh, substance use disorder from the lived experience perspective. To back up just a little bit, this project came to us from the health department. They have um, a group of folks that looks at um, whenever there's an infant that dies, they look into why that happened. They have a group of clinicians that kind of dig in, look at all the different things, the factors that led to it, and then they provide like recommendations here how we could prevent this from happening. Uh, the Tulsa County Health Department has a group that does that called FEMER. And what kept pop popping up year over year was parental substance use was a factor that was kind of underlying a lot of these deaths. 
And so we go to those meetings and something that it, they were like, we need more research into this. Why is this happening? Why aren't these people getting the help that they need? And so that's enter us. OK, let's look into this. And I'll talk a little bit about what we found initially as far as the policy landscape. And then, Eliza, you can fill them in on how we tried to bridge that gap. But basically, you have your most of the folks that are taking care of pregnant people, OBGYNs, um, nursing staff at hospitals, especially. They're very comfortable with providing care to folks pregnant and giving birth. But when substance use is involved, they're in a tough spot. At what point do do I become a mandatory reporter for that kind of stuff? Because there's not a kid yet involved. The DHS won't take reports on a person until they're post-birth. Yeah, till they're born, till they're here. And it really is when we think about best practice providing care, you, prevention is always the way to go, including any kind of child abuse or anything like that. You would want to, you want early intervention is always better. And we know substance use disorder is a mental health issue. And, and sometimes when folks are pregnant, they have more medical interaction with med folks that could intervene and help when they're pregnant. So you have your your medical professionals that are serving pregnant women and, and postpartum women that are like, ooh, substance use, oh no, not quite sure what to do. And then you have your substance use treatment centers, very comfortable with usually a harm reduction approach, like very know what to do in that space, but oh, pregnancy. Even like best intentioned folks that are doing their jobs very well one of the best interventions for substance use treatment for some folks is medication-assisted treatment. And actually, they're, most of them are pretty safe for most pregnancies, but that adds a whole layer of knowledge. And I think folks are just kind of afraid. So that, that's what we found when we started um, kind of talking to some of our partner, other partners that we work with and other things. It's like, okay, let's figure out what this looks like for the people that are going through it. So we did randomized calls with treatment centers across Oklahoma, and there are currently 53 treatment centers in Oklahoma that are listed with SAMHSA as organizations who allow pregnant people to enter their program. Uh, so we made 14 calls to random uh, organizations in that list. And of those calls, we found half of those calls are lines that were disconnected. And when we did research into like trying to find alternate numbers for these organizations, that was a really hefty sort of task to undertake. Uh, a lot of like just really confusing online portals where you don't really find the information that you need to be able to contact these people. And then in the calls that resulted in us being able to actually have a cold call with somebody at a receptionist desk, when we like talked to them, like, that was pretty good. There were usually no wait lists. And if there was a wait list, it was of less than two weeks. So we're calling them and then saying, like, what's your wait list look like? What does the treatment uh, protocol look like? How soon can I get started? And then, like, talking through that and then asking, okay, what if the person I'm calling for is pregnant? Does that change anything? And often it was the case that it did change a lot, even in these programs that were online mentioning that they do accept pregnant people into their program, that when the person who called was pregnant, they were often transferred to another person or put on hold so that we can ask someone else for expertise here. And really in that context of this being the first call that you make, you're really intimidated 
you're not sure if this is the right step for you, but you want to seek treatment, that initial sort of barrier of introducing pregnancy into this context can be really intimidating, especially in the context of criminalization concerns that if I'm like talking to you about seeking treatment and then you put me on hold to go talk to someone else, what's going on? Like, am I about to get in trouble? Those calls went most smoothly when like the person answering had a clear spiel about the program, but they also knew how pregnancy would impact being a part of the program. So there were some treatment providers who really had clarified internal policies internal practices in terms of doing treating both issues or addressing both issues but what you're saying is that it's a small group and not to mention that of that 53 of those 53 call centers that do accept pregnant people only 30 of them accepted medicaid as a um payment option so we have all of these barriers already and then of those 53 again uh, most of them are centered around the major cities of Oklahoma City and Tulsa. Yeah, we see a lot of parallels, I think, with when we talk about shortages and mental health care in general with like rural areas, there being gaps there, like the closest inpatient treatment center being super far and then not having people, Spanish speaking providers and things like that. A lot of similar gaps, like parallel to a lot of the issues that you're talking about. And then along with the stigma and like sort of the attitude shifts that you guys have been talking about that's kind of consistent with, you know, we know how to treat substance use. We know how to treat pregnant people. A pregnant person with substance use, oh no, we don't really know what to do. Could you guys kind of comment on what, in your opinion, contributes to that? Do you think it's kind of like competing priorities because there are kind of two potential people to take care of here, the parent and the soon-to-be child, and kind of trying to figuring out like, training or figuring out who to take care of first? Like, what do you guys think really contributes to that? In the perinatal care setting, that it's definitely a training gap that we identified through our research. Uh, when we talked to mental health care providers, they mentioned that the most important like aspect of this is that OBGYNs who are working with uh, pregnant people who like are doing, well, there's a lack of screening, first off, for a substance use disorder. And when there is screening, that there is a lack of understanding of how to provide harm reduction informed care to people who are pregnant. Yeah, that was a real difficulty that we identified. I was gonna talk, I think I forgot earlier to mention the criminalization stuff, which I think is actually a huge problem in what we're talking about right now as well, because you have some kind of confusing situations that arise when some of the laws that were put in place to protect children, child neglect being the one that is being used in a couple of areas of the state, are being interpreted, especially 2021 or 2020. There was a court case that came through and said it's OK to charge people with child neglect for substance use during pregnancy. And so you have a couple of few counties really that are doing that a lot and you're putting healthcare workers in an odd place where oh baby or cord tested positive for especially when we talk about marijuana you can have a med card and it's still federally classified as a schedule one so 
you have sometimes, oh, submitting something to DHS. In a couple of these counties, you have DHS talking to the DAs. And so you're put in kind of this tough spot as a practitioner of you're almost forced to choose. Do I care more about pregnant mom or mom have, who's just given birth? Do I care more about baby? I'm protecting baby, I think is what a lot of them think. I've got to protect baby. And so I think that's probably creating a lot of confusion. Not probably, it is. We've 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 talked to some of them about just kind of what that feels like, what that looks like on the ground. What should I do? Because you also don't want to not report when you think that you should. Yeah, I, I just, I again, I'm, I'm, you know, a little confused, I think, because I, so if a, if a, if a pregnant mother shows up at a clinic, it starts to initiate prenatal care, but she's also testing positive or, show, you know, is involved in regular substance abuse of some type. Child welfare is not interested because the baby isn't yet born, if I understand this right. But yet they might be in a dilemma whether, oh, do we report this to law enforcement as a violation? Am I confused? Am I? Yeah. Usually it comes to a head at delivery because then you have healthcare professionals who haven't been with this person through pregnancy. They're just seeing baby born. Uh It's usually, I will say usually because we're operating on things that we heard in our research, but it'll be ancillary hospital staff get the positive test and report it often to DHS, who at this point is interested. Yeah, they are because the baby's been born. Yes. Now they're interested. They haven't been interested. Yeah. Which is all, it always seems like a dilemma to me, Joy, because all of the interest in unborn children in our culture, Mm -hmm. but yet they're not interested in that at that point. I don't understand. Maybe it's outside the scope of the podcast today, but boy, if somebody can ever give me a a, a real explanation on that. I would love to hear it because I can, for my entire career, I have not understood that. Is what you're talking about like the fact that they're not interested at the point where they could initiate preventative care? That's right. But the intervention that would deeply impact both the child and the mother, sometimes in a negative way, they're like, okay, we can step in here. And that's something that we see also a lot, again, generally in mental health care, like, if somebody is like not at their crisis point, then it's less likely that they'll be able to have access to care. But it's like, oh, if you're feeling suicidal, like now we can take you somewhere. And that might not even necessarily be the intervention they need, but they've finally met that criteria for help. Yeah. I mean, this goes back to decades ago when I was a medical social worker. And I remember this one particular mother who was in our clinic and I had been, we were consulting on it. And she had already, she had a pretty profound developmental disability and she had already given birth previously and all of her children, each one, I don't remember exactly how many, but they had been all removed from her care and custody and rights were eventually terminated. There she was, she's back pregnant again. Again, we try to consult with child welfare. They're not interested, but the second the same day that she gave birth, they came and got the baby. I, I, I've never understood that when she needed enormous amounts of intervention and help during that prenatal issue. Now, that was a long time ago. Yeah, I'm, I'm hoping to hear that something's changed or things are better. I'd love to hear that from you guys, but I don't think I'm not hearing that right now. I think now. that's what we're going to yeah. hear. 
there are some there are some good things. There are definitely some good things, but what you're talking about, that particular thing is not one of them really. And I think that we could get into a whole conversation about what is child welfare's job because maybe prenatal care isn't it and that there's there's someone else that needs to be stepping in there. I mean, is there some sort of disconnect in like the crazy idea that helping the parent helps the child? Yes. Okay. That's that's just you know, you'd think it'd be obvious, but it's seeming like that's not the primary perspective here. That's certainly not how most policy solutions are being thought about or proposed. Talk about how paid family leave has been this huge thing that we can't get going in Oklahoma. That would help yeah. this situation a lot. It seems like a lot of people, they think that they're helping the child by separating from them from their parent. But like we all know that has detrimental effects on the child and is a trauma, which, you know, developmentally and then older in life, that will have effects on them for the rest of their lives. And so it's just, I think it's very interesting that that is not a focus on how do we keep them together and help the parent and the child instead of we're helping the child by taking them away from their parent, you know? Yeah, absolutely. So I know that you all recently participated in an interim study. I don't know if it was a bill that's being proposed or just a general interim study like on the topic, but can you guys talk a little bit about that experience and what the sort of attitudes and things that were being said during that study and things that you were kind of hearing from legislators on the topic? We got to do the participate in the interim study with our partners, Pregnancy Justice. So they work on, they're a national organization that works in states that are criminalizing components of pregnancy, like situations where you can only be in trouble in this way because you're pregnant. So Oklahoma is on their radar in increasing, increasing level of alarm. We are now, I think, third in the nation for um, rates at which we're criminalizing folks struggling with substance use while they're pregnant. Um, So they can, like, we just want to explain what's happening here to the one of the the committees in our legislature that is focused on like criminal justice, um, judiciary practice, that kind of stuff. And so we were invited to the Capitol to talk about this research. And we would ideally have been completely done with the research before this happened, but that's usually not how this kind of stuff works. It's popping up. Hey, will you come share what you're finding with these folks that are ready to engage. And it wasn't a specific bill necessarily. It was just like, hey, this is a problem. This is ramping up this, this these efforts to criminalize, and it's not equal across the state. So this is something that if you do this in certain counties, you're going to get in trouble for, and in other counties, you're going to get help. So why is that happening? And are there policy solutions that we can propose this next session that would help that situation? I think that, like you mentioned, the criminalization piece is the most important pack, the most important factor here, and that there are just concerns about welfare of the child that were really impacting. There's really a push for the safety and welfare of the unborn child in the situation, which unfortunately is sometimes at odds with the safety and the welfare of the mother. So in that interim study, there were some attitudes that sort of were in favor of the unborn child and putting that sort of dichotomy of like what's best for the mother at odds with that. I will say disclaimer, I watched this interim study online and I was very upset. It was very frustrating to hear 
some of the ways that the legislators were kind of painting the situation in the way that like, well, if we can't punish the parent, how can we motivate them to change? And that is absolutely not the most helpful way to look at the situation at all. But that's really seemed to be the way that a lot of them were viewing it. And they were kind of really struggling with the idea. They're like, wait, well, if we can't if we can't punish them, like, how are they ever going to get treatment? How are they going to get better? Which is very upside down to me. But yeah. And with that sort of like view of the mother as someone who is doing something that is a moral failing and actively and intentionally harming a fetus. And so there isn't really sympathy for this birthing person or mother as someone who has a disorder and has a need for treatment. And I think that what you said about this push for punishment is exactly right, uh, that there is this desire to punish people so that they feel the importance of what they're doing. Like they don't know that what what's happening is important enough or that they are doing harm. And so there's a push for punishment instead of treatment and sort of pushing people or yeah, pushing access to care. More of a moral failure, a criminal act versus a disease, an illness that needs treatment. I'm, yeah. We're still here. Yeah. We're still here. We're still here. Still thinking that. And it says I've been practicing forty years, and we're we're still here. I mean, what I thought is promising about this is they were willing to engage, and not every question was a air quote good question, but there were some good questions that they were asking, and there was a really I don't I wouldn't qualify this as a good question, but it was interesting to to watch this play out. One of one of the guys finally asked, legislator, yes. And most of the folks on this committee are like they were DAs before they began to serve in the legislature or they I think there were a couple of um, law enforcement officers who have seen egregious child neglect cases. So I think it's always important when we're frustrated by these folks to to and I'm sure you all have to not to say that social workers aren't regularly um, doing that as well. Um, he asked, hey, where is the line? because it's hurting, you know, developing fetuses. So where is the line? And there was an incredible OBGYN that presented at the study and said, well, there's not one to me. We will keep trying to help these folks. This, th this is possible. There's no line where you quit trying. He had nothing to say to that. But it, but it's a, I think it's a, it's a question a lot of folks struggle with when you talk about this. It's like, especially when there's the third variable of a developing fetus, you know. You talked a little bit about you know, the perspective that this is something that the parent is doing to hurt the child. But I know, Eliza, you and I have talked a bit about like the sort of comorbidity and how for a lot of these parents, substance use is something they grew up around. It was something that they dealt with long before they became pregnant. And a lot of the times it's been a way to self-medicate for other diagnoses that they didn't know that they had that a lot of them find out that they have once they are finally into treatment. But could you guys speak a little bit about that as well? From our research, we talked to participants who were really ingrained in this social aspect of substance use from a very young age, sometimes as young as 12 years old, where they were introduced to substances by their family. And this was something that was recreational. It was something that was normalized within their social groups and within their family. And because of that, for many years, 
participants struggled to identify some of their behaviors as disordered. So we talked to, for example, people who were introduced to substance use, including opiates, by family members at age 14 or 15. And when later on down the road, this becomes a disordered sort of behavior and they find out they're pregnant around the same time, they have difficulty in sort of identifying that I need treatment for this because this is what's going on with my family. This is what's going on within my social circle or it's normal. We talked to people who, like, for example, when using marijuana throughout their pregnancy, there's this idea that marijuana is not as, or marijuana use in general isn't a big deal. Uh, And so marijuana use during pregnancy is really sort of negligible. It's acceptable. And I think uh, I've strayed a bit away from your original question about comorbidities in regards to other diagnoses. Uh, But we also talked to people who their first experience with getting a diagnosis for their mental health disorder did happen when they were in treatment for substance use. Um, So they didn't know that they had bipolar disorder. Like one uh, participant in specific talked about how smoking marijuana and drinking during her pregnancy was the only thing that really helped her to regulate her mood. And she didn't know why that was. And so she said that she smoked marijuana while she she was pregnant. She drank liquor and she also used opiates consistently because that was the only thing that was helping her with her mood. She said she would be angry when she didn't have it or she didn't really know what happiness was in her mind because she felt like the only thing that helped her to be stable was using these substances. And even during her pregnancy, like it was the only thing that was keeping her stable. So how could she let that go? So for a lot of these parents, it's kind of become a way that they self-medicate and find some sort of stability. And when you're pregnant, you know, you want to maintain that stability in the only way that you've known how. So it's kind of difficult to be like, well, now I need to stop this when it's the way that you've been surviving up until that point. Yeah. And then with some substances, it's really almost impossible to stop alone. Yeah. Or dangerous. We talked to people who did want to make a change in their substance use behavior during their pregnancy. And when they found out they were pregnant, they thought maybe I should stop using opiates or maybe I should switch from drinking alcohol to like only smoking marijuana during this time. And those changes were incredibly difficult to make. They were changes that they made because of their own feelings of needing to protect the child or like wanting this to be a viable pregnancy. It was They were changes that they were doing alone without seeking substance use treatment because they had a fear of doing that while they were pregnant. And they also had a fear of bringing up their substance use to their prenatal care providers because of because of criminalization, because of the stigmatization of like having these two things going on of pregnancy and substance use disorder. I think you just want to add also, I think some of them are aware that they could threaten losing their child once they're, they give birth, that their child may be taken away from them by DHS child welfare, and I would assume. Yeah. And if they have other children in the house, they're terrified of losing those children as well, uh, in addition to the the 
pregnancy. It sounds like the way that the system is kind of set up right now is very loose-loose for the parent. You know, if I don't seek help, you know, I'm not protecting my, my child. But if I do seek help, then I might lose my child and I might end up in jail. And so we talked a lot about the problem and I know like it's not good, but is there anything good that you guys can tell us about policy that might be on the horizon, potential solutions or programs? Are we moving towards something better? Recommendation. Yeah. What, what can you all tell us about that? So there are several initiatives around the state that are either tangentially or directly addressing this problem. There's a STAR clinic in OKC that's specifically geared toward pregnant people with substance use. They've had great success in kind of providing prenatal programming and support. That gap we were talking about earlier of like DHS isn't doing anything, they're filling that gap. And then they're providing those supportive services and that programming and getting folks there. And they're keeping their children at the end. You know, I think they've only had in the time they've been running, it's like, I don't want to cite numbers that I don't know off the top of my head, but have had great success in keeping moms and babies together. So that's one example of like prenatal um, initiatives to, to support people then. The Oklahoma Perinatal Quality Improvement Collaborative, OPQIC, is doing a lot of work with hospitals, training them on, how, on best practices for when you have someone that delivers and there's a positive test. So that's happening. That group has been around for quite a while and um, are doing some really cool stuff in the training arena, which I think is really important. And that's one of, I think, the more important things right now is to get our, our medical folks trained up, OBGYNs and um, nursing staff at delivery hospitals, make sure that folks know how to respond to that in the best way. Right. And, and I would also hope that our university medical centers would step up mm -hmm. and because they sort of sometimes have sway with policymakers legislative officials that it, and it adds a legitimacy to what they're promoting yeah. sometimes and I, I don't you know I don't know if they are stepping up the star clinic is affiliated with OU health so they are supporting that building that out and I know I'm forgetting there, there are also some treatment centers substance use treatment centers that are stepping up in a real way so we've, we worked with oh the name is going to escape me they have a clinic in Tulsa and one in Bartlesville that offers therapy, mostly outpatient, I think, and provides medication-assisted medication treatment to pregnant people. Is not afraid of that, happy to do it. Ocarta, it's, it's folks that experience substance use that have turned around and like created a treatment program that includes housing. Oklahoma Citizen a Advocates for Recovery and Transformation Association, Ocarta. And they have housing and just folks who have lived through it having built the entirety of it, which is really, really cool. So one of the main things that organizations like Okarta, one of the main trends that we found was really important across these recovery treatment centers where we interviewed people is this aspect of bolstering social support for people who are pregnant and have substance use disorder. Like I said, when it comes to this barrier to treatment of everyone around me is using substances. This is what's normal. Once you break outside of that and enter the treatment space, it's really important that you have people who are on your side and who can like not only talk to you about like sort of breaking away from these normalized disordered behaviors, but also who are treating you with respect, who are recognizing your autonomy. When I 
reached out to one of our participants and mentioned that I was going to be on this podcast. She said that the most important thing that people need to take away from like hearing from people with lived experience is that every person needs to know that they have someone in their corner fighting for them. And you might just be the first person who has ever done that for them. So really this aspect of connecting people to social networks who where there are people who understand what they're going through, people who are willing to fight in their corner. And one of the ways that we sort of talk to people or one of the things that we learned through our participants is the importance of doula services and connecting people to someone who is willing to advocate for them, teach them to advocate for themselves in the birthing setting. In some in some cases where, yes, there is going to be a call that needs to be made to DHS, how having a doula or having someone there to guide them through self-reporting for that call could be really valuable. Just for our listeners, a doula, just make sure they understand what what that role is. Yeah, absolutely. So a doula is a non-clinical support person for the entirety of a person's perinatal journey. So beginning uh, with their pregnancy, uh, meeting with them prenatally to help them through aspects of navigating the reproductive health care system and answering questions that they might have during, during the birth. Uh, there's someone that provides not just informational support, but also physical support things like that. And they're providing uh, informational support about different aspects of newborn care to different physical things as well. If you, if for our listeners, if you haven't figured out this is a mess in the system, that role of a doula could make all the difference in the world. This stuff is overwhelming for just about anybody. Uh, but for someone who is pregnant, has a substance abuse issue, they're caught in these these conflicting systems that are going every which way. How do they navigate that without some really someone who takes interest in them and helps them uh, through that process? Seems like the entire world is against you kind of in that situation. And it can be really lonely if you don't have an advocate like that, you know, going with you. Absolutely. And this is also uh, like what you mentioned about uh, the whole world being against you. Uh, this is a system that is not created uh, for pregnant people in general uh, who are marginalized. And uh, when we talk to uh, care providers, I think they also really emphasize the importance of planning to navigate that system. So yes, like planning to coordinate DHS calls and like self-reporting, but also the importance of family care plans where someone has all of the resources that they need to really address the pregnancy and postpartum phases of their sort of journey, where they have listed all of the medications that they're on, whether they're on MAT, and have all these sort of phone numbers for the people that they need to call for each of these issues, things like that, was really important. I know we're needing to wrap up here soon, but I would also like to note that Eliza is in doula training herself to become a certified doula, which is very exciting. And so this is something that you know a lot about. And we might have some listeners who would be interested in finding out. How do they find out? Yeah. If you need doula if, services. If you want to become a doula or need the services, how do you go about doing that? Yeah, absolutely. So I would say that if you're in Tulsa and are also a member of a marginalized community, uh, for example, Black, Indigenous, uh, your teen parent, your justice involved or justice impacted, that 
TBEI, Tulsa Birth Equity Initiative, is a amazing resource for people who are pregnant and they connect people to free doula services if they are a member of those uh, marginalized groups. And then we also have independent doulas where you may be like paying for those services. But I think that everyone deserves a doula, but also like I really want to emphasize the importance of doulas for people who are in marginalized communities who are uh, impacted by disparities. Because when you go into the hospital setting, when you go into these systems that are not designed for your safety, uh, when you face discriminatory practices in uh, seeking perinatal care, that sense of lack of safety, um, lack of autonomy, um, feelings of disrespect, all of those really impact your birthing experience and your safety. So having a doula, having one consistent person on your side throughout your pregnancy journey, throughout your postpartum journey can be incredibly valuable. Yeah. That, that could even potentially help mitigate some of the, potentially some of the criminal justice issues that creep in here, mitigate maybe some of the down the road child welfare issues that come in here. So that role, it sounds like it could be just incredibly important in this with the work that you guys are trying to do and hoping to get addressed. Yeah. A lot of times in these systems that are so messy, advocacy is the most important thing and having a knowledgeable and compassionate and empathetic advocate in your corner can make all the difference. Not just advocates who are like working on behalf of you, but like enabling people to stand up for themselves to identify when something isn't working for them or when a practice is discriminatory and really providing them with all of the information that they need to be successful self-advocates, I think is crucial. But also this understanding that treatment can be scary and it can be, it's a major life disruption for someone who is pregnant, especially. So we have this aspect of talking to people who said that if I go into treatment, I could lose my job. I could lose my kids. I could lose my apartment because I'm not able to pay for it. And all of those things are really disruptive to someone's life. So that barrier to sobriety can be a lot riskier than you might think. So yeah, just keeping that in mind and having patience, having empathy for people who have substance use disorder, that seeking treatment is a major life disruption and yes, we want to enable them to like go down that path, but it takes support and it takes a lot of work. And we want to empower people to do that. And that really starts long before the birth setting. I would say watch out for a report early next year where you'll have like all of this information kind of put into a format that we really want to try and drop you into the situation. Like, okay, here's what happens as you go through the system. So kind of bringing awareness around that. So watch out for that because I think I'm a little biased, but I think it's going to be pretty cool. And then watching out for legislation, hopefully coming down the pike that will alleviate this situation, clarify when and to whom things should be reported and what next steps should be there. And that this is currently, from a policy perspective, getting worse rather than better. So keeping an eye on it and um, having that compassion in that context for when you have these conversations with folks, because this one is kind of hard to understand for folks who have not been working in this space. 
So kind of being armed with the data, the information, and understanding the full landscape of it so that you could have those conversations. Because this one is one, it's got this tricky moral component that can make it tough. So. I I just want to, any elected officials or people out there who are aspiring to become an elected official, I hope you're listening to this. I mean, in a state that there's a lot of effort to prevent abortions, and so, okay, so you've, we've prevented an abortion, but now we've got a mother and a fetus a child in need. What are we doing on that end of the, of the spectrum? And I think if policymakers need to step up, you, you can't have it both ways, guys. Come on and listen to the work that these, these women and these organizations are doing and get behind this and you can make a difference. Over the course of this conversation, we've talked a lot about mothers and about women giving birth, uh, but we do recognize that not all people who give birth are mothers. Uh, but in the context of our study specifically, we did only talk to uh, people who identified as women and I'm as mothers. So that might be the reason why we switch a bit between these broader conversations of people who give birth and have that sort of more informed language versus when we talk about mothers who participated in our study. Yes, thank you for that distinction and talking about inclusive language, absolutely. Well, thank you guys again for being on the show today. If our listeners are interested in this very important and exciting work that Metriarch is doing, keep tabs on them, look out for the report that's coming out, visit their website, and yeah, Mike, any final thoughts? No, I just would like to thank you ladies for coming on. Uh, Joy, thank you for really helping bring this to our listeners' attention. It's very important. It's a it's a mental health related issue that we cover, and just thank you all for being on. Thank you.